Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Something that I think about sometimes when we do this podcast in this in this new era that we're in, this post-Bernie, post-Jeremy Corbyn moment is, like, what is, what is the show even going to be now? I'm sure a lot of sort of left media thinks about this. Like, if you don't have this stuff on the horizon, these obvious things on the horizon that we're working towards, what is the narrative arc? What are we going into? And I don't actually have an answer to that question, but what I do know is that I watched a clip of Fox News's new late night talk show, Gutfeld. Um, it's Gutfeld with an exclamation mark. It's their response to Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel. It's an angry guy. His name is Gutfeld, by the way. And the reason I had such a long-winded intro into this is because I feel like this era, this Biden era, hasn't quite created itself yet. It doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have an identity. And what we're seeing right now is the backwater, the bilge of the previous era. I think we'll see a little bit of that in the documentary that we watched this week. Do you know what I mean? Like, does that make any sense to you at all? Well, yeah, I mean, as Karl Marx says, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. It very much does feel that way. Uh, I think you're right that this era has not, uh, I mean, everyone and everything seems to be running on empty. It feels like all the sort of raw material in politics and culture, uh, you know, all the reflexes people are are following, everything is just sort of a hangover from, I don't know, the the last four years. I suppose, you know, the obvious uh, explanation for that is just the coronavirus. People are stuck indoors. They're still thinking about the pandemic. They're thinking about not seeing their friends and family, etc. And, you know, that's kind of arresting people's ability to form any kind of new imaginary in politics and culture or anything else. I think there are probably other explanations, too. I I think a theme that we've been discussing a lot on the show, in which a a hypothesis that others have have advanced as well, is, is this idea that the early Biden era, insofar as it does have a shape, it's one of kind of cultural regress. Like, that's the basic theme so far. The cultural consensus of kind of about 2012, something like that, seems to have returned. And we're uncertain about uh, where it's going to take us. I think an alternative way of thinking about the current moment, which maybe is is not about regress, but actually, uh, you know, I quoted Marx. This is a little more dialectical uh, reading of the present. I think you can you can somewhat interpret uh, the early Biden era as sort of a fusion of the two eras that came before it, the first being the era of Barack Obama and the second being the era of Donald Trump. You had the Obama era, which was characterized by kind of a, a celebrity and this liberal reverence for kind of, uh, you know, evidence and expertise and, you know, leaders who had dignity and poise and told the truth and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of the high watermark for that sort of liberalism, uh, followed by the negation of all that. I mean, literally just the the, the antithesis in, in many ways of everything that stood for uh, with Donald Trump. And in some ways with Biden, I feel like you kind of get like Biden is in some ways this kind of weird fusion, like not not ideologically, like obviously he's much closer to Obama ideologically than he is to Donald Trump. But just in terms of kind of the, you know, we're talking uh, a bit abstractly here, but the general kind of, I don't know, tenor and aura of the of the current moment. And, you know, I feel like cultural liberalism has sort of, you know, which has never really gone away, but that's returned just as like the basic ambient noise of the current moment. But then at the same time, the presidency itself, which had this kind of high point, um, it really enjoyed its zenith as an institution with Barack Obama. You know, it, it hasn't really come back. Like it's, it feels like it hasn't really survived Donald Trump because Biden only speaks like once in a while 
while he's almost kind of this invisible man like that that liberal fantasy of uh you know that you heard from you know various people who uh who ran for the democratic nomination you know when i'm in the white house i won't tweet a single time you'll never even have to think about me that's kind of come true. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I think you can you can extend this thesis. I mean, it's kind of mud- I'm kind of muddling the two interpretations, uh, the regress one and this one now at this point. But you know, you see this on the right as well, uh, where the sort of MAGA people like they don't really know what to do with Joe Biden. Like they're just kind of going through the same motions as before. I figured Biden would be an easy one-term president. Well, but, give, give it time. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But I don't know. When you see how they've launched the opposition to him and it's all just like cancel culture is coming for Dr. Seuss and we we need to boycott Coke. It's re- uh, it's just like, it's, it's all the same like dumb as dog shit, right-wing red meat that sustained them in the Trump era. But there's no like court jester at the the top of the pyramid anymore articulating it and like lending it an elan it's just like a series of like learned reflexes that they're doing and it's not really having the same impact you know at this time under obama the tea party was already in full swing we haven't seen anything like that under biden yet i don't know maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about that more when we talk about q in a minute but I, I realize now that I actually digressed a little bit uh, from your original topic, which was Gutfield, Gutfeld. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what the hell that is? Well, it is a new right-wing late-night talk show. Every couple of years, it seems like Fox News tries to do their version of The Daily Show. I don't know if you remember in the mid-2000s, they had a show called the half hour news hour that was basically explicitly modeled as the right wing daily show. This one, as Alex Shepard pointed out in his article for the new Republic is very obviously modeled on Bill Maher. Although as Alex writes, and I'm quoting from him, like Mars, his monologue alternates between attempts at humor and stern lectures about politics and culture, though Marr is a comedic genius in comparison. Gutfeld has a habit of underlining his jokes to make sure his audience catches them. He has adopted Dennis Miller's half-smirk as a tell. Get ready, the punchline is coming. That feels like his take on Jeb Bush's please clap. And Alex goes on to write, How about the jokes? Well, you see, Joe Biden is old. The Biden administration has a hard time explaining its child detention policy. The mainstream media both has Trump derangement syndrome and is desperate to have him back because everything is so boring now. Nicole Wallace is a woman and therefore has an annoying voice. Young people want to cancel old people, even grandma. Now, Alex uh, makes the case that this is the worst late night talk show of all time, even worse than Chevy Chase's from the 90s. Although as I was watching, and you know, he's probably right, by the way, (laughs) probably is the worst late night talk show of all time. But you know, as I was watching Gutfeld's first monologue, which he delivers like a kind of generic 80s club comic, it's very like Andrew Dice Clay, angry white guy, like, hey, I got some jokes here. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, what about this? Huh? Huh? That kind of tenor. You know, uh, Stephen Colbert is not going to tell you the truth. He's not going to ruffle any feathers about how Joe Biden is old that kind of delivery but as i was watching it i realized and i'm sure you knew that i was coming here it really is not all that much worse than what's what's going on on the on the regular prime time talk shows okay well you know this actually interests me i feel like we'll have to watch an episode of this for the show at some point because it's interesting how you know think back to you know the mid-2000s when the daily show you know felt very cutting edge you know and i suspect that you know to some extent i think it's because we who are watching it that is the co-host of this show and i suspect many of you who are listening um you know 
know, we were younger at the time. Um, but in fairness, John Stewart is a very skilled comedian. He's very good at delivery. That's right. You know, I maintain John Stewart a very real talent. He wasn't, you know, he could be at least um, not always. There's some pretty big exceptions to this, but he could be pretty iconoclastic and what he was doing was genuinely interesting it was you know a kind of meta journalism that was using comedy uh, effectively to its own ends and it's interesting to think how we've complained endlessly on this show about you know how so much that's come after the Stuart Daily show has sort of aped the basic format like you know the sort of news format or just more broadly it's kind of used comedy to make political points, but it's actually stripped it of the comedy. So the kind of form of comedy, the pretense of comedy is still there, but it's just people sort of like, I don't know, delivering generic liberal truisms about whatever. And what you're saying about this Gutfield thing is is interesting. Gutfeld, Gutfield, I'm never get, I'm not going to get the name right. Uh, we can forget about Garfield. That, right? Like right, yeah, that. this this new Garfield show, um, or you know, uh, there's that thing Babylon B. Is it called that like stupid right wing oh, yeah. comedy website? Like it's interesting how they actually seem to be making the same error there. Like they're under the impression, as a lot of liberal comedy is, that there's something inherently funny that if if you just copy the the form of like a news show or a news article or a late night host or whatever it is to make sort of very heavy handed and didactic points about stuff that don't trust the audience at all to grasp irony or subtlety or anything and that tell rather than show. Um, It sounds like this is making the exact same error. And it's actually somewhat comforting to me to think that the right, which, you know, in my judgment has in in many respects been much more effective, like the right wing cultural ecosystem or the the right wing apparatus as broadly defined as you could, could define it, has actually been more effective in many ways than its liberal equivalent, been more effective politically. And this kind of suggests, no, actually, it's, you know, every bit is inept and suffers from many of the same pathologies and deficiencies. So, uh... There, there is hope, I guess. All right, here we are again. A brand new show and a brand new Greg. I'm as giddy as Kamala Harris explaining kids in cages. <laughs> or Woody Allen hearing about kids in cages. I had one thing just before we get into the meat of today's show that I wanted to talk about off the top, if only because it, it sort of fits into kind of the, the spiritual heartland of, of this show or kind of its original inspiration, which was the political paraphernalia, particularly the of the liberal variety of the kind of, uh, you know, Bush era, the sort of early and mid 2000s. And there's a, a longtime friend of the show, kind of longtime character in the Michael and Us universe, who's in the news today, courtesy of The Intercept. I'm talking about the progressive champion, drug industry shill, uh, Howard Dean, uh, who was uh, made an appearance in The Intercept today, uh, courtesy of this report. Headline, Howard Dean pushes Biden to oppose generic COVID-19 vaccines for developing countries. Um, I'm not going to read the whole story, but I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs. Uh, It doesn't take long to uh, understand kind of what the crux of this is. So this is by uh, this is by Lee Fong. Uh, Howard Dean, the former progressive champion, is calling on President Joe Biden to reject a special intellectual property waiver that would allow low cost generic coronavirus vaccines to be produced to meet the needs of low income countries. Currently, a small number of companies hold the formulas for the COVID-19 vaccines, limiting distribution to many parts of the world. IP protections aren't the cause of vaccination delays, Dean claimed in a column for Barron's last month. Every drug manufacturing facility on the planet that's capable of churning out COVID-19 shots is already doing so. 
uh, extremely misleading point that Dean's making there. He continues, creating a new medicine is a costly proposition. Uh, And actually, this uh, next quote is the key. Companies would never invest hundreds of millions in research and development if rivals could simply copy their drug formulas and create knockoffs. So if people want to read the full story, it's uh, it's over at The Intercept. But that last thing that Dean wrote is absolutely key. Companies would never invest hundreds of millions in research and development if rivals could simply copy their drug formulas and create knockoffs. So this argument is ridiculous in you know most, if not all, contexts. But we're talking here about a global pandemic, which is connected to a an extremely infectious virus that really does not give a shit about borders or anything like that. So... You know, it's in absolutely everybody's interest that everybody everywhere, whether you like them or not, uh, whether it's profitable or not, whatever, uh, has access to a vaccine. It's hard to imagine a more transparently kind of special interest argument than the one Howard Dean is making here. He's basically making explicit that the interest that he is speaking on behalf of here don't want any competition, right? Because their profits are tied up in having a monopoly on vaccines. And if the vaccines become generic, if they can be more easily produced, if they can be more widely distributed, uh, that's a problem. There's not really anything to say on on this. I mean, beyond what I've what I've already said. I mean, this is as close to kind of cartoonishly evil as you can as you can get. I mean, I really wish the story had come accompanied. Like Howard Dean should be wearing like you know she'd have like a little like snidely whiplash mustache and, and like be wearing a top hat and like a he should have a cape. But the reason I'm bringing it up, you know, in the context of our show is that you know Howard Dean really was in many ways the progressive edge, or he was considered the progressive edge in American politics like circa 2003-2004. And I think it's real cause for optimism. You know, the American left and the global left, whatever you can say about them generally and as far as as they are currently from power, we have come a very long way from this being the sort of permissible edge. I mean, Howard Dean didn't used to be as bad as this, obviously, but he was never a particularly populist figure. And it is embarrassing that he once kind of held the place in the broadly defined progressive imagination that he once did. Uh, One more thing I'll say about this is uh, I was tweeting about it earlier today and I got a bunch of responses from people who are accounts, I should say that I really think have to be bots like accounts with just these kind of Uh oh here we go yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) it's Russian hang on is this Rachel Maddow uh, who's wandered into the Gore Lieberman studio it's it's disinformanskaya uh, coming (laughs) coming our way in defense of Howard Dean by the way it was all Russian bots who were going after me this week too by the way I don't know know if I don't know if you saw that pile on Howard Dean incidentally has actually like speculated on Twitter that like people should look into whether the intercept is getting funding from Russians sources uh, yeah um, i saw that yeah uh, yeah our, our progressive champion folks um but like seriously like you know these accounts that are clearly not uh, real people like you can just tell they're too they're too kind of generic you know they have a lot of numbers in the handle that kind of thing and then, like when you go through the account offering this like very decontextualized defense of howard dean or or whatever everything on their feed is just retweets of like the lincoln project or something and then when you go to their replies it's just like this same reply they're giving to me but just at absolutely everyone with a blue check mark who's tweeting out this story 
So, like, unless Howard Dean has, like, a, a ton of alts, which I guess is a, a possibility, um, <laughs> you got, got to think that there's, like, a some kind of, like, PR firm somewhere or whatever that's uh, that's involved in this, which i uh, got to say is uh, more, more pathetic than it is sinister. I've been enjoying, this is off topic, but I've been enjoying all those Amazon accounts that have sprung up now, like Amazon Jenny or Amazon Bob, who are talking about how much they love being at Amazon and how they absolutely do not have to pee in a bottle. They, they can go to any bathroom that they want at any time. And they've all they've all got a little box in their in their icon because that's their community. Presumably, some of those accounts are fake. But you know, Ken Klippenstein uh, had a report mm-hmm. uh, also for the Intercept about how which I guess was this was last week um, about how Amazon actually had this like recruitment program where they were like finding people who might be well suited to doing this online to doing agitprop for the company online. Although, of course, like if you want to find the most embarrassing versions of that, you don't have to look at like these random accounts. It's literally being done by like Barack Obama's press secretary. (laughs) Anybody, I'll show them Q proof and say, look, talk me out of it. Have Have you heard heard of the Q? The what? QAnon? What had started in an online forum had crawled out from behind the screen to the seat of power all with the help of a single letter. And we're gonna win big. You just watch. In 2018, I set out to chart Q's origins. I wrote the first part of HN while I was coming off of psychedelic mushrooms. (laughs) You can really find yourself falling down a hole trying to find out who Q is. I'm pretty sure Q is a spin-off from Star Trek. Q is whatever you want it to be. Sometimes they'll even think it's me. I have a question. You're going through a possible list of who Q might be. That's right. (laughs) You're on the list. Well, let's continue then. Well, we were talking about the backwater of the Trump era, and we see a lot of that in the new HBO documentary Q, Into the Storm, which is a six-part documentary series filmed over the course of three years by a filmmaker named Cullen Hoback who went on a journey to try to find the true identity of the mysterious figure known as Q. And over its six parts, it gives you kind of a kaleidoscopic view of the online world over the Trump era. You know, you learn about 4chan and its eventual successor, 8chan. You learn about Gamergate. Alex Jones makes an appearance. You know, all of all of your favorite guys. There are a couple of main characters, though. There's Fred Brennan, who is the founder of 8chan, which was created sort of in the spirit of 4chan. But the big difference is that it was unregulated, you know, a a true experiment in free speech. And of course, this is where QAnon, as well as lots of other very unsavory and illegal activities have gone on over the last couple of years. And the other biggest characters are Ron and Jim Watkins, the father-son team who currently operate 8chan. And Ron, you know, the porno-loving son, he may or may not be Q. Um, hope that's not a big spoiler. <laughs> yeah, we might, might have wanted to have a spoiler warning on that. But yeah, so this documentary is worth talking about for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them is that in the final episode, it advances a compelling if if not you know it's not a completely airtight case but certainly a compelling argument as to the identity of q at least in terms of who has been 
posting his cue after a certain point, because as uh, is detailed in one of the early episodes, or I guess midway through the series, the cue posting style really changes. I think it's sometime in 2018. I think it's either directly coinciding with or kind of around the time that the hub of QAnon sort of moves over from, from 4chan to 8chan, though I could be uh, could be mixing up the... That's about when the Michael and Us podcast started to take <laughs> off, so I decided to hand over the reins. You know, I don't... I only have seven days a week, guys. <laughs> but but so I could, could be getting the timeline a little mixed up there, but that's, that's kind of the basic idea. Um, I do want to talk about kind of the genesis of, of why I wanted to uh, talk about this documentary on the show, because basically, uh, you know, I watched this purely for just entertainment. You know, my, my girlfriend really likes true crime documentaries. She just likes documentaries in general. I said, you know, there's this new documentary about QAnon. Like we watched a, a Vice documentary about QAnon a month or so ago that was uh, that was decent. Um, but like six part HBO documentary on, on QAnon. Let's let's do it. And so like that's the only reason I watched this. I didn't uh, necessarily necessarily watch it with any intention to cover it on the show or to review it. But, uh, you know, after I finished it, I thought, you know, there's actually some good stuff to write about this. You know, it gets into a lot of the interesting issues around QAnon, which is just something that has interested me for a long time. I I think it's a a really fascinating phenomenon. I also think the way that it gets talked about often kind of misses the point. But so I sat down to review this and, you know, like, like, uh, like I do when I I review uh, most things, I wanted to see how it had been received, particularly by mainstream sources. I feel like that can uh, kind of tell you something. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm opening myself up for mockery here, you know, like sounding a bit like, you know, the friend who uh, whose all, all their opinions about a movie comes from like the reception section on the Wikipedia page or whatever. <laughs> but like, you know, for me, this is kind of a part of the process, right? You look into what the you know, mainstream consensus in particular is. And, and I think with regards to a documentary about QAnon, that's particularly important because uh, the political mainstream stream, you know, has had, broadly speaking, a a particular line on QAnon or a particular way of talking about it. And I was actually quite perplexed by what I found. And incidentally, I think I'm going to be speaking with Colin Hoback, the director, in the next few days, and and hopefully I'll be able to share that interview on our feed somewhere uh, in the next week or so. Uh, and I want to I want to ask him about some of the critical responses to the film, if I can. I was cu- quite perplexed to see the number of negative reviews and just the way that, the, some of the ways the film was being discussed. So I went I very quickly. I sat down initially to write a review of Q into the storm that was going to be you know fairly straightforward and and you know largely complimentary. Um, and then Thumbs I was up four bags of popcorn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, after reading some of these reviews, I thought, you know, it's actually important to make a positive case for this film because I really think what it's doing is good. But I also think that it's being maligned in a, in a way that actually has nothing to do with politics and is just both misunderstanding the project of the movie, but also is not really taking into account the three years of work that went into it or the fact that it was conceived of and, and began as a project project when QAnon was just getting off the ground and had not attracted the majority of its adherents and had not really penetrated the political mainstream at all. So I just wanted to get all of that as a kind of clearing of the ground before we discuss the movie. I wanted to put all that on the table. Well, I'm glad you said that because I actually found the movie. I mean, the movie's quite well executed. It's uh, a fine piece of journalism and filmmaking. I think the way that he's able to talk to these people and uh, get the best out of them as interview subjects while also kind of making clear where he stands is quite skilled. I will say that I found watching it just a little bit exhausting just because it felt like, again, the backwater of the Trump era in a way. It felt like Holy shit, didn't I just didn't I just live through all of this? Which isn't necessarily a knock on the series. I appreciate the series as this compendium of everything that happened over the last couple of years. 
but I did find it less pleasurable than I might have had I watched it a year ago or a year from now. I mean, there's the cultural regress thesis we were talking about before <laughs> manifesting itself. You know, it's it's penetrated into our podcast, clearly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understand the point you're making, at least the spirit of it, where it's kind of like, you know, God, why are we still talking? Why do we still have to think about QAnon? It's like, it's like Joe, Joe Biden's in the White House. Yeah, actually. It's like, actually. I, I, just, I just want to tweet like whimsy about the boat that got stuck in the canal and how, whoa, it's a law. It's, it's it me. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but but so let's I, we'll, we'll get into the criticisms the film received a little bit further down the line. I, I actually want to read from some of the, the negative reviews it got. But let's let's talk a little bit more about the film. So the film, as I said, you know, began when the making of the film anyway, began when QAnon was it was just like a random, a random Internet thing. It's interesting to note, actually, you know, I was listening to um, the director on uh, Will Summers' new podcast, Fever Dreams, which uh, which is interesting. He was uh, he was on the show today. And one of the things that Will was talking about was the fact that, you know, when QAnon first appeared on 4chan, like when that first post happened, which kind of started the whole thing, like people were making fun of it, you know? Like, it didn't have the cachet at all that it would later accrue. And so that's the context in which this film began. And the early episodes kind of document, you know, some of the early stages of it, the birth of this kind of large network of, you know, YouTube channels or, or, you know, QTube, it's called. You know, the way that all of this sort of grows out of just existing sort of malignancies online, like, you know, Gamergate being the obvious one. And I was struck by what a cross-section of society is represented in those early stages. Stages. I mean, yes. a lot of uh, a lot of people from all different class positions, including some fairly high up class positions, oh, yeah. like well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is an obvious example. Yeah, and and uh, you know, suburban Republicans who clearly have big houses and stuff. One thing that I don't think fully comes across in the documentary is how, at least initially, from what I understand, a lot of the backbone of QAnon, you know, came from from older people who, you know, spend a lot of time on the internet and maybe are just not as good at separating, like if something is disclosed to them in the form of something that looks like it's a news source, an official source or whatever, like they're not good at differentiating that from an official, an actual official news source, that kind of thing. The QTubers themselves, of course, are often younger people, like much more kind of web savvy types. Grifters, uh, frankly, a lot of them. Um, I mean, we could debate like, you know, what is in these people's hearts. I don't think most of these people are like pure charlatans in the sense that they don't believe their own bullshit. I think like they largely do. But so, you know, Hoback kind of walks us through this kind of early stage, uh, the, the creation of QAnon. Uh, there's an incredible shot of an alt CPAC, a sort of uh, Trump era alternative to CPAC, um, and the first ever panel about QAnon that was at this uh, conference, and there's nobody in the room at all. I can't remember if it's 2017 or 2018, probably 2017. Absolutely nobody in the room. Uh, just uh, one of these QTubers, I think, speaking from this big stage in this huge room to just like empty chairs. Incredible. Um, and then like a year later, the thing was just everywhere. Um, so this thing goes from a few signs at Trump rallies and something that's kind of proliferating on the fringes of the internet to something that really explodes. Um, and Will Summer, when I interviewed him, his estimate, um, and this was a conservative estimate, he, he said, but QAnon commands interest or adherence from something like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to measure, but from something like 15 to 20% of the Republican base, which is a, a not insubstantial number of people. It's also gone global. There's QAnon presence in, in Germany now. Uh, it, it appears in places where it's not even really like exactly about QAnon, like, or, or it's not about Q himself. It's kind of become 
unmoored from that. It's made its way into new agey settings like yoga and wellness. It's got a, a relationship to evangelical Christianity as well, which QAnon and white evangelicals needs its own documentary, I think. Um, but so it you know proliferates in all these ways, and uh, the film documents this. But as Will said, it really focuses heavily on these three characters to which he has really extraordinary access. They're, they're all based in Manila. Um, you have Frederick Brennan, who is the closest thing the film has to a protagonist. And a fairly sympathetic character, surprisingly so. Yeah, so he, he founded 8chan uh, when he was 19 years old. I think he's now about 27. You know, he suffers from brittle bone disease, quite a vulnerable person. But, you know, he, he describes founding 8chan and, you know, really just uh, having a sort of generic pro-free speech attitude towards it, like free speech shouldn't be regulated. So he's hired, uh, he, he sells the site to um, the Watkinses or to, to uh, Jim Watkins, Watkins Sr. Um, and then he, he's actually retained by them or hired by them and he relocates to Manila um, where, you know, uh, Jim Watkins, who's just this extraordinary character, um, just uh, really creepy. He kind of makes a living via this like eclectic mix of sources. And this, by the way, is something I think the film does really well, just showing you just the, the strangeness of the people who are kind of involved in and adjacent to this whole thing. He's got this this pig farm in some rural area outside of Manila. He also runs a chain of like retail shops. It's unclear how much money, like he, I guess at one point claims to not really make any money from A-Chan and sort of suggests it's a labor of love. It's not clear if A-Chan makes money. It, I think, you know, it's one of the highest ranked sites in the world or was for traffic before the, the crackdown happened. It's now, it's now rebranded as 8-Kun. That, that was just me like clicking refresh on the page <laughs> over and over again. Uh, but but of course, you know, advertisers, right, are going to be shy about advertising on this uh, on this site. And I mean, if, if if anyone's ever been to 4chan, it's like I've I've looked at 4chan. I used to spend a lot of time covering the far right, and um, you know, I, I've been on these sites. And I mean, the stuff you see on them is genuinely. I mean, and you see some of it in the film. Pretty disturbing, I thought. Some of the kind of like child porn adjacent stuff that's in the film. It's like imagine the sort of like I don't know tentacle porn genre like that. Think about the milieu in which like that kind of thing exists it's like that but like to the power of 10 completely unrestricted i mean there's vague claims made that it's sort of moderated in some you know vague fashion but it, you know it's, it's basically like an anything goes um place there's a real undercurrent of irony poisoning and nihilism to the stuff you see there and to kind of the whole aesthetic uh, of that a question that a lot of people have had about q over the past few years is how how serious are they? Like, to what extent is this a put on, you know, this idea of Hillary Clinton eating babies in the basement of a pizza restaurant? And it's clear that a lot of people in the documentary uh, really do genuinely earnestly believe it. But yeah. then Ron Watkins yeah. does seem like a very irony poisoned to the point of being a sociopath individual. Well, that, that's the thing about Chan culture, right? Is it's like, at what point does that kind of stuff like, is it just leaning into transgression for transgression? sake versus earnestly being twisted and sick or whatever but then like the further question is like to what extent does that even matter like if if, if this is like the universe that people are existing within um if there's like a, a global cast of i don't know atomized lonely mostly male individuals who are consuming this stuff on a daily basis like does it really are we really that interested in like the sense that they mean it or not um i i don't know when it comes to QAnon, i think there's a lot of interesting questions around and maybe we can get into this a bit a bit later but a lot of interesting questions around like 
to what extent is it a prank gone awry versus, you know, a, an intelligence operation or something like that? I mean, that's something that the film uh, kind of dances around and, and I think treats in a very interesting way. Before we kind of uh, dissect uh, the issues at play here a little more, um, just to kind of complete kind of the arc of the series, I mean, basically, Frederick Brennan falls out with the Watkinses um, over Achan's associations with various mass shootings. You know, the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter is posted on Achan. The Watkinses kind of throughout are constantly denying that they, you know, they're just like, we're just, you know, we're just the owners of the site. We just operate it. We're not really, you know, involved. Like, I, you know, Ron Watkins is saying, like, I don't even, I don't even really post there, you know? I just, I'm like, I don't even really know what these people are thinking about. Uh, Jim Watkins is saying he's not particularly political, etc. It's very difficult to square with the fact that he has some like crank YouTube show that he does from his like home studio or whatever. Uh, and he's like wears a MAGA hat and stuff like that. So uh, this is a film with a lot of like unreliable characters to which the filmmaker has uh, very intimate access. So Brennan falls out with these people. And then, uh, you know, one point, you know, one point, uh, the director himself actually helps Brennan stage this dramatic exit, like, like escape from Manila as COVID is descending on the world. As Brennan is facing this lawsuit as part of his uh, battle with Jim Watkins, which could see him end up in prison. Uh, so he he decides to, to skedaddle. And in one of the most stressful scenes that I've ever seen in a documentary, they anxiously wait in an airport as some guy on a motorcycle like drives over with like i guess the equivalent of an exit visa and they catch like the last plane out to hong kong before the entire like global travel industry <laughs> shuts down <laughs> throughout all this hoback is exploring the identity he's following various kind of breadcrumbs for who q is and i actually think and i assume this was intentional this is i think anyway quite compelling this kind of who done it uh, mystery element of the series and I think actually offers a sort of indirect commentary on why this sort of thing is just inherently interesting and compelling. Like one of the things that clearly animates QAnon is the fact that it's kind of like a role-playing game and, and it's kind of like a mystery. Like there are these cryptic drops and people can interpret them however they want. It can build whole franchises. There's these, these whole like micro sects of, of the Q-verse and like, you know, these like factions and tendencies that have like different interpretations like schisms in a church or something like that. You know, they have these like elaborate doctrinal disputes about like what particular posts and like parts of posts mean and things like that. Yeah, it's a fun hobby, but I think we found out that this is what happens when we leave religion behind. <laughs> hey, did you know that Trump's jersey is number 17 and that Q is the 17th letter in the alphabet? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's it's all it's all stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's the director is obviously much more thorough and much less credulous in his method. But, you know, there's a, a part where he goes to uh, to Italy to try to meet Steve Bannon, who various people are suggesting is Q. And uh, Jim Watkins, actually, at one point, uh, if, I think most of this was cut from the film, but it, it partly appears at one point presents uh, Hoback with this like elaborate data set that's purporting to have all this evidence that Steve Bannon is actually Q. All of that, I think, is very compelling. But so things really, uh, you know, the last episode in particular, episode number six, really has a different kind of tenor. Uh, this is the episode which features the Capitol storming in which uh, the director is embedded with Jim Watkins as this, you know, march from the Stop the Steal rally to the Capitol area is happening. Um, and as people are storming the Capitol, uh, something he said on Will Summers' podcast was that this was quite an unnerving experience. He, he said he, he didn't really sleep for a couple days before and uh, Jim Watkins had this kind of 
uh, gleam of, of pride in his eye and was clearly very happy that this thing that he owned had helped to create all of this. So the, the, the mask really slips and the sort of blanket denials from the Watkinses that they have nothing to do with any of this, uh, that really falls apart. And then there's a scene uh, right at the end where uh, Ron Watkins kind of seems to, according to the director anyway, let the mask slip finally and uh, as good as admit that he is Q. This is in their, their final conversation. Uh, Ron Watkins says, Yeah, so thinking back on it, like uh, it's basically it was basically three years of intelligence training teaching normies how to do intelligence work. It's basically what I was doing anonymously before, but never as Q. See that smile? Ron had slipped up. He knew it, and I knew it. And after three tireless years of cat and mouse, well... No, never is cute, I promise. <laughs> never is cute. So for, for Hoback, this is, you know, as good as an admission that Ron Watkins has in fact been controlling Q, posting his Q, something like that, at least since this change in, in the way Q posts. And I think this is a really interesting conclusion because... As I said earlier, you know, a lot hinges on what Q is. And a lot of people have, you know, speculated that it might be a deliberate uh, operation by figures who are loyal to Trump, close to Trump. You know, these ex-military figures perhaps may have initiated it. You know, and then the opposite pole is, you know, this is bred out of sort of Chan culture and narcissism and nihilism and things like that. And I have to say, QAnon has always been more interesting to me when thought of as something kind of anarchic that doesn't really have one cause and that really isn't deliberate. And and to me, that's always seemed like the more accurate interpretation of it or the one that's more likely to be accurate. It's like vis-a-vis Trump, how it seems much more interesting and also persuasive to suggest that a whole range of factors, some of them kind of uh, short-term factors, many of them long-term factors, enabled Donald Trump's victory in the 2016 presidential election rather than, you know, some reductive solution like, you know, like there's the butter emails crowd, there's the Russian bots, there's the, you know, uh, online misinformation or just like sheer voter ignorance or like whatever, all these kind of things. Uh, to me, it makes much more sense to try to understand how how that uh, horrific event happened in a more nuanced way. I think the same thing applies to QAnon. And I think Ron Watkins is such a perfect sort of encapsulation of that. You know, he seems to be someone with a reactionary beliefs. You know, he's not particularly concerned about, you know, the horrific outgrowth of this universe that he's uh, enmeshed in. But he also just kind of seems nihilistic. You know, his, his intent is kind of uh, ambiguous. If the film's uh, hypothesis is correct, and he actually is, you know, kind of behind this stuff in a direct way, I don't know, it seems much more likely to me than this being some kind of deliberate operation. And as I think it's included in the film, he does this post under his avatar, Code Monkey, uh, I guess just in the past few months where he, you know, I can't remember exactly what it says, but I mean, the crux of which is sort of like, you know, it's time to move on, folks. You know, what if the real cue is the friends we made along the way? You know, like something <laughs> something like that. And so, you know, having been uh, involved in this, if indeed he is, you know, just, just is kind of like moving on to the, the next thing. And I don't know, to me, even though all of this is just kind of provisional and, and hypothetical and it's not airtight, it is uh, certainly the most compelling explanation of and kind of explication of the, of the meaning and origins of the QAnon phenomenon that I've seen yet. 
Soon, Q's theories became Trump's theories. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Trump's theories became Q's theories. We call them the Fraud and Death Administration. Someone from the community would sell bleach as a cure. Trump would sell it later. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute. Trump would push HCQ, a drug that had no proven benefits for coronavirus. Hydroxychloroquine. I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. And Q would follow. It was like, after you. No, no. After you, I insist. You were mentioning earlier that the movie has received a number of ambivalent or negative reviews. Is the suggestion that the filmmaker is somehow, if not glorifying, then at least being too fair to the subjects in some way? Because we see him interact with a lot of very unsavory people, like some some of the Gamergate people who are like loud and proud Gamergaters. Is that it? Yeah. So, you know, this is in many ways the real reason I wanted to do this documentary on the podcast. I mean, it's entertaining. It's interesting. I would recommend people uh, watch it. There's no need for us to kind of go through every detail. You might as well just uh, see it for yourself. I I think QAnon is too big a subject for any documentary to cover holistically. I think it's very admirable that Cullen Hoback kind of got in on the, you know, on the ground floor when this thing was just starting um, and and really captured its uh, genesis and growth. But yeah, I mean, that's the crux of the negative reviews, uh, basically what you just said. And I want to read from a few of these here, because I think there's a lot at stake in in the kind of uh, argument they're making, uh, which is one I, I think of as possibly well-intentioned, but which I, I really quite uh, strongly disagree with. So one review in IndieWire, for example, at one point reads... At its best, Q Into the Storm is an aimless puff piece and some of the conspiracy theory's most notorious promoters. At its worst, it's an uncritical platform for QAnon adherents to promote their worldview and trivialize as a conspiracy theory that has directly inspired several violent crimes. And I just want to say about this particular review, a few sentences later, it complains that uh, the film has these disturbing images, including the beginning of the Christchurch uh, shooting video, so the, this horrific GoPro video, I mean, not the actual part where anyone's being shot, but just kind of the, the setup. So I'm a little perplexed by this because it sort of goes from suggesting that the film downplays the dangers of this and then it somehow complains that, that it's showing these disturbing images and connecting them back to the whole phenomenon. That doesn't seem um, coherent to me. It, it, it seems like it can't be both. Well, first of all, IndieWire is a terrible website. And <laughs> secondly, there seems on the part of this writer a clear distrust of something that presents unpleasant things and then expects the audience, even in the context context of a QAnon documentary that is being sold to liberals on HBO. Like, come on, QAnon is coded as a bad thing in this movie. And yet the reviewer still seems suspicious that maybe the audience isn't isn't going to get it. You know, a few more examples of this. Uh, Into the Storm isn't a deconstruction of QAnon so much as a grimy mirror of it. That's from uh, The Verge. Uh, another review, the project could have worked to counter or explore the damage QAnon has done to the wobbling facade of American democracy, but instead it's a rollicking game that could arguably make things worse. Uh, the, the review in The Verge also says that the film embodies the ways that idealistic journalistic values, uh, a devotion to humanizing subjects, a goal to exposing powerful wrongdoers, and a belief that exposing truth will set people free, fail in the face of extremist movements. I don't think I mentioned this in my in my review. Maybe I should have. But this this film was actually criticized uh, just when, when the teaser trailer came out by people at something called the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, which I guess is based at Harvard. Um, and they criticized it as something that could, you know, make Q seem edgy and exciting, could attract new followers. There was a write-up on in Variety, uh, which said that the series, quote, raises certain existential questions about how and perhaps whether to cover misinformation campaigns. 
Um, and it goes on to argue that the documentary, you know, gives so much airtime to people who promote uh, the theory um, and, you know, prominently displays like the usernames and the messages of QAnon personalities. Just one more review I'll, I'll quote from here says that Q into the storm takes for granted that its viewing audience has a solid grip on reality ignoring years of recent evidence to the contrary. I am very perplexed by this response. I mean, for one thing, it's true that the the price that the director pays for access, you know, is that he has to kind of sit in these rooms with these people and just sort of let them talk, you know, and, and uh, you know, he's not uh, talking to, you know, QTubers, for example, and saying, well, actually, what you just said isn't true or, or whatever. But the whole documentary clearly has no sympathy with these people, both through direct commentary from Hoback himself and from the way it's edited, kind of goes out of his way to show that there are inconsistencies in what the Watkinses say. Like at one point they say one thing and later on they say something else. Clearly these are untrustworthy subjects. I don't know how anybody could watch, you know, these like QTubers and decide that they're cool. That is anybody who's not already steeped in this universe and like who who is not already like a QAnon adherent. I'm bothered by the kind of paternalism of these reviews, this idea that, well, of yes. course, you know, I'm I'm a trained media scholar i'm i'm a critic and so i i know how to differentiate between reality and fantasy unlike the raw public and there's also this desire to want to make certain knowledge certain ideas forbidden not even to present them and then dispute them but to just kind of like put them off the table altogether because this is this is stuff that even though it exists it should not be allowed to exist and and that's that's a tendency that i've seen increase a lot over the last few years and i also think there's a bit of an inconsistency in that uh, demand i mean i'll just quote again from um this piece in variety which i think this is worth re-quoting even though i quoted it already um th- this was the one about uh, how the series quote raises certain existential questions about how and perhaps whether to cover misinformation campaigns. So one response to online misinformation has been like, we actually need to cover the shit out of this. We need uh, every news outlet to have people who spend the days like fact-checking this stuff just relentlessly and tracing misinformation cascades and stuff like that, which, you know, I think that impulse has led to some problems, but I mean, I, you know, fact-checking is Im- important. There is a lot of misinformation online and there's there's more we could discuss there, but I'm, you know, I'm at least, uh, you know, nominally sympathetic to that. But then the turn in this uh, thing I just read, where the question is no longer how to cover these things, it's about whether to cover them at all. That seems to contradict this whole impulse. So we go from, you know, we need a dedicated class of experts who understand this stuff and can, can explain it to people to, you know, we actually need gatekeepers who basically keep this stuff out of view at all or something. And there's also this arrogance that like, well, of course, we know for sure what reality is. It's like we've seen that incredible deference to the institution of fact checking over the last few years. That's right. The institution that gave us the Iraq war is uh, or, you know, the, the, the institution that gave us weapons of mass destruction. Well, you know, people have been like banned from social media for posting memes that say Joe Biden. Biden was the creator of mass incarceration, which like is something that is, I guess, factually, if you really wanted to dispute it, because incarceration is something that is... It wasn't invented in 1993. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's not implemented at the federal level. It's technically implemented at the state level, too. You know, that's just one of the many web of factors that create mass incarceration. 
Um, but broadly, the spirit of it is true. That you can imagine somebody who's a self-appointed guardian of what reality is uh, making that a forbidden thing to say, as in fact they have at times. Yeah, and of course, I would be I would be a little more comfortable with the whole sort of like we need to fact check everything impulse. If and look, I'm not criticizing people who do this work. A lot of it's very important, and some of them actually appear in this documentary. But I mean, I think that people who who given fact checking and evidence this sort of particular like political valence, you know, the, the kind of people that, uh, you know, in 2012 would have posted those memes that were like, uh, the facts seem to have a liberal bias or like reality seems to have a liberal bias or like that kind of thing. Like those people just don't seem to care that like Joe Biden, when he lies about stuff, you know, like we, I think uh, Bronco, my colleague, wrote a, wrote that piece, I guess, last month about Joe Biden's town hall, where he said this extremely misleading thing about the coronavirus and its effect on children. You know, there was like no outcry about this uh, at all. And in fact, you know, a lot of the media response was just to kind of like praise it and, and say that, well, you know, these facts and data that he said were factually correct. They appear in these official, uh, these other official sources or, or whatever. But yeah, I think paternalism really is the theme here. I think you're right. And I think that's what makes me so uncomfortable about the backlash this film received. There is an implicit assumption here, I think, that uh, merely being exposed to unsavory characters, incorrect information or whatever, you will just sort of inadvertently like absorb their values by osmosis. And I don't think that is accurate or or correct. I don't think that's the way that misinformation largely spreads. I mean, I suppose, you know, it can spread in this very direct way in kind of like everyday context, like somebody posts a screen cap that's like almost real and but it's you know it's been like tweaked very slightly you think it's real you tweet it out like that is just because like you you know you didn't verify you didn't know the facts behind the tweet or or whatever it was but something like QAnon and I think you know the whole kind of wider apparatus of right-wing misinformation I really think it's impervious or at least it's you know it's not going to be defeated by like fact-checking alone it's certainly not going to be defeated by not like talking about it or, or covering it or trying to understand the roots I can't remember where I read it but you know somebody uh once wrote in in Jacobin that you know fact-checking only has the power over over simple lies and you know you know most misinformation and certainly anything on the scale of QAnon has a kind of mythic quality you know it happens at the level of narrative it's not happening at the level of kind of granular facts that you know if you if you line up all the facts that a Q, Q adherent believes you, you line them all all up like ducks in a row and then you kind of like knock them each down by the time you've, you've got to the last one the person no longer believes in QAnon that's just not how these things work you know they have a much deeper kind of emotional hold on people um, and they're ultimately kind of political phenomenon as opposed to something that I, I don't know happens purely at the level of uh, you know individual individual epistemology or, or whatever. You know, I was reminded watching this documentary of when we watched Richard Linklater's Slacker, which takes place in the 90s and shows all of these, I guess, middle class suburban people who are really into conspiracy culture because, you know, every battle has been won, but they're all just kind of there's just kind of an ambient unhappiness that's going around. And all of these people are sort of looking for some sort of explanation for it. And when we watched Slacker, it felt like very much a relic of the time that it came out, at least it did for me, or or a time capsule of when it came out, because, well, you know, ever since then, we've all rediscovered Marxism, right? <laughs> all of us, every, every single one. 
but actually that's that's not the case and i see a lot of that in the older people that we see in this documentary again a lot of people who live fairly comfortably but there's still this ambient dissatisfaction they know that there's something off and they know there's something wrong and they're still racist despite being rich yes uh, which, which, which is, which is and having call and having college degrees that gets at why something like QAnon is ultimately a political phenomenon and kind of has to be understood in in these wider terms and not just at the level of like incorrect facts something will summer said to me and if um for patreon subscriber you can listen to my interview with him which was i guess about a month and a half ago something like that when i asked him about kind of the the origins or the the impetus of QAnon, like beyond just the timeline of it he had a really compelling uh, explanation, which is that, you know, at least when it comes to, you know, Trump supporters, who are obviously the backbone of the whole thing, you know, it's like these are people with conservative I- identities to begin with. And a lot of these people convinced themselves that when, you know, when Trump was president, he was going to like solve all of their personal problems. Like all their enemies were going to be vanquished. All their problems were going away. The revolution was here. And what was the Trump presidency? Well, it was uh, in many ways, uh, in one respect, they just a completely generic Republican presidency. Trump's greatest domestic achievement, arguably, was cutting rich people's taxes, you know, in in true populist fashion, giving billionaires a tax cut. He was, you know, constantly besieged. You know, there was the Mueller investigation. All the libs that they thought they'd owned, uh, they still wouldn't pledge fealty to God Emperor Trump. Conservatives were still a minority in the culture. Late night TV was still against them, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's a very long-winded kind of rendering of what Will said, but his basic argument was... These people, you know, thought that all their problems were going to go away. And when that didn't happen, they had to have an explanation for it. And if you are personally loyal to Donald Trump and you think he's really cool, um, you think he's the ultimate alpha daddy figure or whatever, you know, it's not going to be very easy to just admit like Donald Trump is a charlatan and uh, he's not a popular president. And uh, the Democrats victory in the 2018 midterms is a reflection of that, let alone their, their victory in the recent presidential election. You know, it's a lot easier to be like, actually, he's way he's part of a mythic crusade against the deep state that is working to undermine him because there is a, a secret cabal that may or may not go back like hundreds of years. All of history will culminate. You know, I guess first it was going to be in the 2018 midterms, which was going to be like Q had speculated there was going to be a red wave. You know, then the, the storm was going to come on inauguration day, like when Biden was sworn in. And, you know, like these people were literally like sitting around waiting. They were like any moment now, these National Guard that are here to do security inauguration, they're going to turn their guns on the Democrats like all evil is going to be vanquished like in a single gesture or whatever with one swift stroke will defeat our enemies and like that didn't happen and you know it's very much a when prophecy failed kind of situation the big thing i wanted to ask will summer when i talked to him was what the hell are these people doing now like this is the ultimate prophecy failing the whole point of q failed like are they abandoning it what's going on and he said well there was like some shock at first but then a lot of them started talking about like how well, actually, uh, maybe the spirit of Q was right, that it's just the timeline was wrong. It's actually our enemies are too powerful. Maybe the United States, it's actually been in receivership with the city of London. Like finance has owned the United States since the 19th century or something like that. Like the conspiracy theory just gets bigger, which incidentally, uh, that in true QAnon fashion uh, certainly sounds like it's tied to some uh, much more ancient and, you know, relatedly ugly, uh, uh, different conspiracy theories. But anyway, I think the whole thing ultimately has a political dimension to it. And it ultimately uh, has to be understood in those terms. And that's the thing that I really think uh, the criticisms of Q into the storm missed. 
Dangerous ideas. That's a scary idea. People conspiracy theorize about things that they think are powerful. What have we conspired against? Followers try to discredit reporters because we're required to find out if it's true or not. It seems like Q's gone mainstream. They don't care about other people dying. They're lunatics running the asylum. You can't expect to get counterpunched. We, we have to go. We need to move. Game over. This Q thing is just exponential growth. Like I was saying off the top, we haven't really seen in the first few months of Biden's presidency, at least, the emergence of a Tea Party-like force. And I don't get the sense that we've really seen the emergence of people like Glenn Beck, you know, whoever the equivalent media figures who kind of like rose to the moment in the early Obama era. And I don't really have a conclusion to this except to wonder why that is. I mean, watching this documentary and being reminded of the storming of the Capitol, one difference between now in the early Obama era is that uh, right-wing grassroots activism has kind of a stink on it right now. It it has a branding problem. It's also been like excised from a lot of social media platforms, right? Trump himself has been banned from Twitter. And the Tea Party was obviously funded heavily by big billionaire interests. And I feel like the sorts of people who are funding the Tea Party haven't really found, you know, what will be their grassroots thing to fund, to continue to give a grassroots sheen to the conservative movement. So much of that energy went into Trump's cult of personality over the last couple of years, which they're now working to, I guess, either uh, eliminate from the conservative brand or trying to manage it within the conservative brand, as well as QAnon over the last few years, which has really replaced the Tea Party as being the big conservative grassroots bogeyman. It seems like we're not really at a state right now where those oligarchical interests are going to start funding QAnon to be the new grassroots conservative movement. So again, this isn't really building anything at all, but I guess I'm just wondering what's next and why it hasn't emerged yet. Well, I mean, I think it, you know, it's important to note how every incarnation of American conservatism Uh, whether we're talking about mainstream republicanism or the sort of far-right fringe of uh, the Republican Party, you know, like, to some extent, they're all kind of just like a rebranding of of something that, I mean, I guess in some ways has radicalized over decades, but to me is, it's a continuous phenomenon, let's put it that way. So, um, you know, for example, the so-called National Conservatism Conference that happened a few years ago, maybe it was in 2019, um, which was sort of, it was sort of supposed to be the, you know, like, this is the new big thing. This is the, you know, populist conservatism or or whatever um, for the for the future. Um, you know, this is the conservative movement's kind of, you know, attempt to negotiate with the Trump era in some, uh, in some way. And so, you know, Tucker Carlson spoke at that, Josh Hawley, people like that. Um, and I remember, you know, listening to the Know Your Enemy podcast, a uh, podcast about conservatism hosted by Matt Sittman and Sam Adler-Bell um, at, when, when that conference happened. And they made the the great point that, you know, if you were to go back to an equivalent conference in 2003, say, or 2001, 2002, that kind of period, and, you know, the conference is about neoconservatism, you'd basically have the same people in the room, <laughs> right? Right? Like, like the, this, is, this is a branding conference more than it is something that has, like, real ideological dynamism to it. Uh, the Tea Party, I think, you know, that very much applies uh, to that as well. I mean, what was the Tea Party if not just like a new, uh, you know, a relaunch of sort of Reaganite, quote unquote, small government populism with like a strong undercurrent of racism? That's what that was. 
Uh, similarly, QAnon, I guess, you know, in some ways is unprecedented, but go back and watch the stuff Glenn Beck was doing in 2010. I mean, it's surreal. I mean, it's, it is like dropping chicken entrails on a sundial, you know, to determine the future. Like it's that level of, of crazy. You know, it's all uh, those broadcasts were like, what's that scene in the Simpsons where like Millhouse is like drawing all those connections on the chalkboard. And he's like, we're through the looking glass here, people. I mean, that's what those broadcasts were actually like, you know? And so I, I think, you know, one of the themes of the Trump era, which we don't need to belabor because we've discussed it a lot is just all these things being treated as if they're exceptional but they actually you know have in some ways been with us for a very long time in answering your question though i'll return to kind of the theme that we began with which was this one of cultural regress i think everyone's running on empty i mean the actual answer to your question is that you know what what comes after trumpism i mean the inchoate version is this kind of populist conservatism so-called I don't know if the national conservatism thing stuck, um, you know, like on paper, at least what this is, is sort of like working, cl- you know, pro working class Republicanism. This is Republicanism that uh, thinks American workers are getting left behind, thinks corporations are, you know, have too much influence in American life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when you when kind of peel back the layers of what this is, like, I don't really think it's that different from the conservatism that we've known for the past four years, really for the past eight years, for the past 20 years, 30 years. I mean, when you watch someone like Josh Hawley, who's a very, uh, a very overrated, overhyped figure, I think, you know, when he attacks corporations, like, what is he attacking them for? He's attacking them for being woke, you know? It's like, the problem with woke capitalism is just the woke part. All these people are against unions, like, they're against minimum wages. I mean, you know, there was that whole fear in the early, you know, when COVID hit, when Trump was doing all this stuff, we're like, oh my God, is this when Trump, who's this, he's this chaotic figure... Is he going to, you know, use the sway that he has over the Republican base and the credibility that he has with Republican voters? Is he finally going to bring a redistributive agenda of some kind, maybe an exclusionary one, but a redistributive one to the Republican agenda? And the answer was no. <laughs> the institutions that sustain, you know, what what's called the conservative movement are by and large, you know, right wing uh, evangelicals and a section of big business and a base of kind of uh, middle managers and kind of small bourgeoisie. That's still the base of conservatism. It was the base of conservatism before the Trump era. It will it will be the base of conservatism for the foreseeable future. And as rebranding efforts go, this, you know, kind of Holly thing seems uh, particularly regressive in the sense that it just seems to be copying all the reflexes of the Trump era. While the Democrats were tabling their stimulus bill, what are conservatives talking about? What What's like the conservative echo chamber going on about? Uh, what is like Ben Shapiro devoting all his like time to like Dr. Seuss, right? It's like, it's all just cancel culture. It's like, I was banned because of a heated gaming moment. You know, like I'm being shadow banned. I'm being demonetized. I don't know. To me, it's all the same stuff. Uh, everyone's running on empty and it's not just uh it's not just liberals it's very much happening on the right as well okay so what you're saying is everything's going to be okay well the good thing about this show is like QAnon, it can kind of mean whatever you want to so uh y- yes <laughs> i'm sick of all these witches and warlocks you're full of shit pumpkin popsums i'm sick of it you keep interrupting me all of it's lies because you're lying that's why oh there's energy and oh now we're done with trump you said he was the messiah you said he was in Suffer your cute people after this. I knew what you were day one, and I know what you are now. Witches and warlocks are full of shit. Pumpkin popsums, I'm sick of it. You keep interrupting me. And all of it's lies. Because you're lying. That's why every goddamn thing out of your people's mouths didn't come true. You said it was all over. You told 
witches and warlocks are full of shit. Pumpkin and Popsums, I'm sick of it. You keep interrupting me. And all of its lies. Because you're lying. That's why witches and warlocks are full of shit. 